Uh, we're going to continue on our series on our path to the resurrection, um, which is inside the Mark series, which means you're getting two series at the same time, all at once, it's two for one, so there you go, you're welcome. Uh, if I haven't met you, yet, uh, met you yet, my name is Nikolai, I'm one of the pastors here, and I am so excited to be going through this, this passage, not because of the content that you read just right through here. I'm excited to walk with you through it. Today we're walking through a text that's not really the happiest of texts. It's, it's, uh, it's kind of a downer, to be honest. Um, last week we started uh, discussing this descent into sorrow, um, talking about the betrayer. In the garden. And so we continue our slow and steady march through the events of Jesus' life that'll crystallize into him receiving the title of Man of Sorrows. Um, we're told that we have a Savior who is uh, acquainted with grief and suffering. These events prove it. Um, many ways, this is not a sermon that we would like to hear. This is not a passage that we would like to read through. Um, it's not a part we'd like to linger on. But it, to make the dawn brighter, we will pass through the shadow. Uh, pray with me. Father, we, Lord, we confess to you that we we, Lord, as humans, are not in any measure worthy of the Savior that you've given us. Lord, we cannot together gather enough merit to warrant such a gift as the Lamb of God. And yet, Lord, we read this as those who have received grace because of your son, because of his greatness. And so, Lord, we bow before you as, as humble recipients. And Lord, as we look at your word today and marvel at the faithfulness, the fortitude, the endurance of our Lord our Savior, and we will also, Lord, look at the failure of his friend, of his follower, and Lord, as we do this, I pray that we would not too quickly snap ourselves out of contrition, Lord, I pray that as we read through this, that we would be convicted, Lord, to put ourselves in our place and to put you in your right place. Lord, I pray we learn more of your, of your heart as we go through this passage this morning. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, this morning we are 
going to finish up Mark chapter 14. We're actually going to get two narratives that are woven together. Uh, we're going to follow Jesus, and then we're also going to follow Peter. And this, re- uh, this particular event is recorded in the other three Gospels as well. And so, uh, if you want to keep track, Matthew 26, Luke 22, John 18, those are going to be the places to go. If you want to read it together, or if you have a harmony of the gospel and you see them all together, that's very, very helpful. Um, we're going to look at not just two narratives, but we're actually going to look at two trials, if you want to think of it that way. The first trial is the obvious one. It's Jesus on trial. It's pretty official. We'll, kinda, we'll talk about that. Um, standing before leaders... There are those who bear false witness against him. And then you actually kind of see out in the courtyard another trial that goes on. It's unofficial. It's before slaves and servants. And there you have true witnesses. Two very different outcomes. Two very different stories going on at the same time. So we have actually quite a bit to look at today. So... Uh, as the slide guides know, um, we have a lot to, to look at, so let's go right back to the passage here. Verse 53. Let's walk through this together, and we'll stop a few places and highlight a few things. It says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes all came together. Now, here is a, um, a gallery of Jesus' enemies, all lined up, all together. Various places throughout the Gospels, you'll see all these different groups represented, different agendas that all come together for this one agenda, uh, which is to condemn Jesus. To call it a trial is is really not fair. This is not much of a trial, if you really want to be honest about it. Um, Jesus was most likely arrested somewhere between midnight and 1 a.m. and was brought to the chief priest. We don't know exactly the time the trial took place, but Luke records that dawn broke during this trial. So a couple things. This happened at night. Why at night? It happened at night because, as we'll see later, much more poignantly, they were afraid of Jesus. And appropriately, they were afraid of his followers. It happened at night with these invited people because they were afraid of what would actually happen if they held a real trial, a legal trial. If you um, are uh, looking to punish yourself, you can read through the Sanhedrin um, recorded laws to see that this really is something that's very out of the ordinary. This is not legal. But it was done because they were afraid of him, which is very interesting. And it was highlighted when we talked about the interaction in the garden. They brought soldiers to arrest a man who had never shown himself violent, except maybe on a couple of cases. So maybe they were afraid, but still, one man. The disciples did not show themselves to be very um, very great um, 
fighters, if you want to put it that way. Peter tried, but Jesus set it down. Uh, Continuing through here, though, we have our second narrative that's going here. Verse 54, we have Peter, where it says here that Peter, Peter had followed him at a distance. And I actually like that phrase, followed him at a distance, because you could definitely feel that, not just in a physical way. But by his own words, it seems that he followed him at a distance that night. Uh, but followed him right into the courtyard of the high priest and was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Sets, it sets the tone right here. We don't see Peter again until verse 66, but the, Mark wants to make sure we understand these things are happening at the same time. Right? Mark is out there. Jesus is in here. And so this is happening at the, the same time. Uh, Same time here. So we'll go to the account of Jesus, and then we'll see Peter at the end here. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Right here we see the intent of the meeting. Again, trial is very generous because they showed up and said, okay, how can we put this guy to death? And they're looking for evidence to put him to death. That doesn't sound like much of a trial to me. This is, of course, just a sham. They're looking for a way to do this. What's even more odd, they don't even have the power to put him to death. Legally, they can't execute anyone, according to the law of the Romans. They need to find some reasons so they can give him over to the Romans so they can put him to death. They can't do it. So they need to find something. So, yeah, they basically brought him there to figure out how they could come to the appropriate outcome, to the outcome that they wanted. It says that many came to bear false witness. Uh, You see that in verse 56. So they came, but their testimonies did not agree. See different people giving different testimonies that didn't match up. Again, not much of a trial. Verse 57, we have the testimony of one of those false witnesses, as we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build it, I'm sorry, build another not made with hands. That we actually do have a record of. Uh, if you go to John chapter 2, we actually do see this, um, this teaching of Jesus, or the saying of Jesus, this remark of Jesus. If you look at verse 18, it says that uh, this is John chapter 2, verse 18. We're going back, back, back in time in Jesus' ministry. So, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? So even at that point, they were confused in the Gospel of John, we have a commentary recorded here. It says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. It says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So Jesus there is speaking in a, a turn of phrase, calling his, his body the temple. This is then used against him in this sham trial, to try to condemn him, which is uh, rather shaky if you think about it. I don't think any of them really thought 
that he was saying he was going to destroy that temple physically and then rebuild it in three days physically. It's rather silly. It was to prove a point, and they were trying to use it against him. Verse 58 and 59 again continues to show what's going on here. It says, even though, I'm sorry, yet even about their testimony, they did not agree. They still couldn't put these different pieces together. They still couldn't actually put together a case against Jesus, let alone one that would lead to a death sentence. Look at verse 60. However long this trial took, this was, this was taking some time. So when I see verse 60, this sort of feels like the high priest is trying to get to the point. Verse 60 says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Verse 61, But he remained silent, and he made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Christ is just Greek for Messiah. Are you the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? Is what he asks. And Jesus said, I am. Now that's a pretty loaded answer. If you go back throughout the scriptures, that phrase, I am, this simple statement of being is a term that God uses for himself. Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. We looked in John 2 at a clear metaphor that Jesus is using. And some might look at this and say, oh, this is just a metaphor. This is not a metaphor. This ties a lot of different pieces together. I'm sure you could tell from the reaction of the high priest, they got it. It says, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus here claims to be the cloud rider, which is incredibly epic. It really is. I don't know if your mind went directly to Super Mario, some guy sitting on a cloud riding around. That's not what they were thinking. This is an incredibly epic turn of phrase. This title goes all the way back before written history to be the Lord of all. This is a term to mean a, a, a God that would sit above all things. It was used in Canaan of Baal. It said that Baal would ride the clouds. And God took that name and said, no, Baal doesn't ride the clouds. I ride the clouds. And he referred to himself that way throughout. If we go to Psalm 68, verse 4. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides 
through the deserts, his name is the Lord. Exult before him. Some translations, this will put him in the clouds. This is the one who rides the clouds. Psalm 104.3. Psalm 104.3. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. This is not only a claim of position. This is a claim of deity. It's not just a claim of deity. It's a claim of deity above all other deities. He is the one who will be seen above all things. What's more, Yahweh took that title and he lived it. If you go back to Exodus, um, starting in chapter 14, God shows himself as a cloud through the day and a pillar of fire at night. He shows himself to be this cloud, and that cloud continues to follow the people of Israel as they go through the desert, resting where the presence of the Lord is. This cloud was a herald of his position as the one who rides the clouds in the heavens. Isaiah 19 refers to him that way as well. Daniel 7, they see a picture of one who is riding in the clouds, very specifically identifying that one as Yahweh. Matthew 24, Jesus highlights this as something that will happen in the future. At some point in the future, Jesus would be seen riding the clouds. Jesus ascends into the clouds. Revelation chapter 14, verse 15. We have one of the most poignant pictures of this. And another angel came out of the temple calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the, hev- I'm sorry, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. This is seen as the one who sits on the cloud is the righteous judge of the earth. The cloud writing motif, the fact that Jesus used that, he is claiming not only that. So you put it back. Let's, let's go back. We'll go back into, into Mark. What, what he says here is, high priest says, hey, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of God? And he says, I am. And <laughs> I'm not just the Messiah. I'm the cloud rider. And to that, they all ripped their garments. This was a sign of mourning. They were aghast that he would make such a claim. And I'm sure in the back of their minds, they thought, we got him. Blasphemy. And that's what they claim. Oh, he's blasphemous. I think Babe Ruth is credited with saying, it ain't bragging if you can do it. It ain't blasphemy if it's true. And so he makes this claim. And if they asked, if they actually asked for evidence that he would be the one who was riding the cloud, he could have given it. They don't even ask. With this, they condemn him. Verse 63, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. 
I mean, they've been trying for hours, and they finally thought they found something where they could actually condemn him to death. Why? Why this trial? Why all the time taken? What? What? What are they? What are they after? Why are they doing this? What I think we fail to understand is that this group, chief priests, the high priest, the scribes, the Pharisees, uh, the Pharisaical, this is the Sanhedrin. This is made up of all the leaders of Israel. Why were they doing this? And the answer is, is they were actually afraid. They were afraid of Jesus. It's pretty clear by them holding trial in the middle of the night, they were afraid of the crowds, but they're actually afraid of Jesus. The reason is, is that Jesus, as a person, as a man, who he was, and from his claim here, he as God and judge, the person, the message, and the government of Jesus threaten the contemporary expression of human-based government and its power structure. It was true then, and it's true in every age. They fear Jesus. And the enemy knows it. They, the enemy absolutely knows. The enemy, the, the supernatural enemy of, of Yahweh, of Jesus, they know absolutely that when Jesus makes that claim that it's right, it's true. That's why they had to try to put him to death. They had no other method in their minds for how to stop this from taking place. Jesus and his message threatens every power structure that exists. Because whether you want to admit it or not, the coming kingdom is going to be a violent overthrow of every political and just leadership power structure that exists in opposition. The message of Jesus and his return as the cloud rider is dangerous and it is scary to them and they want to silence it. And that is still the case today. Because every day we come closer to that reality coming true. Verse 65. Some of them began to spit on him, cover his face, strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. They start to abuse him, to beat him, which is an odd thing to do to someone who just claimed to be the righteous judge. But they do it. Why why this reaction? So, we're looking here at a, at a trial, albeit an illegal one. Why are they doing this? And I really do think the reason is, is because Jesus already had put them on trial and condemned them. A couple places to look. Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 1 through 10, we have what God thinks of leaders the leaders of Israel who abuse the people. Ezekiel 34, 
starting verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they are scattered, because there was no shepherd. They became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountain and over every hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, But the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding of the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Jeremiah 23, very similar words. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock, you have driven them away, and you have not attended them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. You can see... God is serious about this. He, is, he calls his leadership to task. John chapter 10 all of a sudden has a different sound to it. John chapter 10 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he does not enter into the shepherd fold by the door, but climbs in by another way. That man is a thief and a robber. He who enters the door, uh, and, I'm sorry, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own by name, and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. The sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of a stranger. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So... (laughs) They didn't understand, so Jesus made it more clear. Let me just make it clear to y'all. Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door for the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers. I am the door. When Jesus says, I am the door, 
this is a this is a method for caring for the sheep. It would have a, a walled area and they'd gather the sheep in, but there would be no door. And so the shepherd would lie in the doorway. That way if a sheep tried to exit, they could he could keep them in. If someone tried to come in, he could protect the sheep. He is not just the good shepherd, he is the door. He is the guard of the shepherd. And so when they brought him to trial, I can't help but think that some of them may have heard this. And Jesus using the same terminology and the same figure of speech and turn of phrase to condemn those shepherds. And Jesus claims himself to be the good shepherd. These men who stood before Jesus to put him on trial, they all knew they themselves had already been condemned. So they mocked him and they beat him. What an uplifting story. Let's go to Mark 14 for the other half. Verse 66, we return to Peter. It says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. Seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also are with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it. He denied it, saying, neither, I neither know or understand what you mean. Went out in the gateway and the rooster crowed. As this part of the narrative continues, three times he is confronted specifically about being associated with Jesus. He was confronted as a question of his allegiance. Are you with him? What's so interesting is Jesus is up in this trial being falsely accused. Peter's down below. Could you, could, pause for a second. Can you imagine if Peter said, yes, I am, preached a little bit of what Jesus said. It wouldn't even have to use his own words. Just said something that Jesus said. What if, what if Peter had taken the opportunity there, but he doesn't? They had seen him with them, or with the disciples, they'd seen him with Jesus. They say, No, you're 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 a Galilean. You can tell from the beard. Different style beard. He said, No, you were with him. He says, No, even in, in one phrase, he even curses. He says, No. Swears he's not. Rooster crows again. It's not recorded here, but in Luke, it says when the rooster crowed a second time, Jesus looked, looked at Peter. Was Jesus at a window and looked out and saw him? That's the only thing I can think of. And then it says when Peter thought of it, he wept and he ran. Very different trials going on. This should have been something that 
not only Peter, but the rest of the disciples were, were prepared for it. Jesus had, had talked to them about it. He had, he had warned them. He had tried to prepare them for this time and failed. Jesus even said specifically, Peter, this is what you're going to do. Peter, did, he denied that Jesus knew what he was talking about. Oh, I'll never do that. I'll die for you. In Mark 10 and Matthew 20, we don't have to turn there. There is a, an interaction. It's not specifically with Peter, but Peter's there. This is post-transfiguration. But you have John, or James and John, and they, it sounds like they had their mom go and talk to Jesus first. And Jesus is probably like, what are you guys doing? So they come up and they say, hey, so in the glory, can we sit at your right and left-hand side? And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. First of all, I can't give that. That's not for me to give. But then he says some, something to them. He says, are you able to drink the cup? Can you, can you suffer with me? Can you drink from that cup? That same terminology is used in Revelation of judgment. Can you, can you drink from that? And they go... We can do that. Sure. Jesus says, well, you will. So it's, it's going to happen. You're, you're going to. There is no glory without the cup. They had seen the glory of the Lord. This is after the transfiguration. They knew there's more, some, something more to this than just, we're going to set up some earthly kingdom. Something's going to happen like that. And there's something more. She said, are you, are you sure that you can do that? James and John, yeah, we can do that. Peter says, yeah, I'm, I'll die for you. Here's the opportunity. They run. Was Peter willing to be identified with Jesus even if it meant suffering? No, he wasn't. Not at that point. He was not. In this scenario, we, we are, we're a little bit Peter. And I think, I think we really think about it, if we put it in a different type of scenario, we're, we're Peter quite, quite a bit. There came a day, finally, where Jesus is on trial, the words of Jesus are being questioned, his actions, just who he was. And Peter was asked to identify himself with that message, with that man, Peter said no. And, and honestly for us, there's going to come a day when, when, when the words and the teachings of Jesus that are stated that we'll be asked to identify with them. Maybe we already are. Maybe there's a situation, small ones, not monumental ones, not life-shattering ones or life-condemning ones, but there are those opportunities. Do we shrink back? Do we deny our connection with Jesus? Do we deny the truth? We have to ask ourselves, are we willing to receive the benefits of the gospel and yet not drink the cup? Do we want the glory without the cup? And I think if we're honest, we'd say, yeah, I would like to receive glory without suffering. And the question is, is is that likely? 
that we will never be called to identify ourselves as condemned? Will that happen? It says clearly, we're never greater than our, our masters. So then the question is, is, do we think ourselves greater than our master in that regard? John chapter 21. John chapter 21. We actually get, I, I think, we get the response to this denial. So, so Peter has denied, he runs off. Uh, fast forward, resurrection. Jesus shows back up, he's meeting with the disciples, shows up a few different times. And John 21, this is a time where Jesus shows up, and, 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 and honestly, it, it, when, you, when you read through it, this really looks like Jesus just wants to be with his friends again. He makes them a meal. They're out on the boat. You know, they're, they, they come back in. He's got food there. and It's like he just wants to be with them again. Even though he's, he is the resurrected Lord. He wants to be with them. And there's this interaction that Jesus has with Peter, and to get ever so slightly meta just for a second, I can't help but feel like John. Because Peter and John, they, they were pretty good friends. After the resurrection, they hung out a lot. They, they did a lot of things together. They have a lot of stories, you know, tell the kids, the grandkids. Um, I don't know if they had grandkids or if they've met them. But um, I kind of always kind of feel like this is meant to, in a sense, redeems Peter. None of the other Gospels record this. John does. This interaction that he has. It says, when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than them? Sign out, if we had time, we could look at all the different instances after Jesus meets Peter where he calls him Simon. And it's usually not good. It's usually after he said something dumb or screwed something up. He calls him Simon or Simon Peter. Not always, but it... So I wonder here, he just calls him Simon. Simon, son of John. He doesn't even say Peter. Do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my sheep. Second time he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He says to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend to my sheep. Third time he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? So he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Three times he says that. And this is one of the few times where the English-Greek division does us a a major disservice. Uh, We we still get the main point here, but it's a little nuance in Greek. Jesus asks him, Peter, do you agape? No, sorry. He says, Simon. 
forgot my own point earlier. Simon, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? Peter says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. You know that I love you like a brother. He says, feed my sheep. The second time. Simon, do you, do you agape me? You know that I phileo you. You know that I love you like a brother. Tend my sheep. And the third time Jesus says, Simon, do you phileo me? He just breaks down. He says, I, I phileo you. I love you like a brother. Three denials. Three opportunities to express love. And even in this, Peter has to admit, and admits to Jesus directly, that he loves him like a brother. So then this next section here, this next couple verses, where he says, you know, when you were young, people just would take you around, you know, wherever they wanted to take you. When you're old, someone is going to take you where they don't want, where you don't want to go, and signified how he would die, basically saying, Someone is going to someday take you someplace and you're going to die for me. And so what I love about this is Peter admits to Jesus right here on the beach, I don't know if I'm there yet. I don't know if I am agape you unconditionally would die for you. And so Jesus says, there's, there's going to be a day where that happens. You will. That's who you are. This, I, I, I do think <clears throat> that this here is a fulfillment of one of the fulfillments of Jeremiah 23, 4. Jesus had already gone through condemning the current shepherds of Israel. And here he commissions a shepherd says, feed them, tend them. And then he makes the call for him to follow him. Verse 19, John 21, 19. He said this to him, he said, follow me. That was the first thing he ever said to him, right? Now that means something different. It means something different than the fisherman in a boat that this preacher comes by and says, follow me, and he drops his nets. Now he's, he's on a shore, had already dropped his nets and admitted that he didn't think he was the shepherd that he could be. Jesus says, you will be. Follow me. Truth is, we are Peter way too often. We're Simon way too often. When the sun is shining and we're standing in a group that is affirming, of Jesus and affirming of the truth. We we're pretty, you know, we can be pretty bold. We can say things that are honest, that are true, and be very vocal. But when Jesus is accused and on trial, oftentimes we shrink back, even lie. Or we tell those half-truths that make us feel better later that we said something but not quite enough and not what we should have and probably not everything we should have. So the question is laid to us, do we love Jesus unconditionally? Do we love him like a brother? 
I'd say even for us who had never physically spent time hanging out with Jesus, that might even be difficult for us to say. Do we really phileo Jesus? Or do we love the idea of loving Jesus? Some of us look at the life, not just Peter, but the other apostles and think, man, I don't think I could ever do that. I don't know if I could live a life boldly, give up so much and and die and follow the master's lead like that. And so maybe this morning, when, and if, if Jesus is asking you, do, do you agape me? Maybe we, we're honest and we say, well, I, I phileo you. Maybe we have to be honest and say, I want to phileo you. Every day, we have an opportunity to, to do just that. To love him. And it could be different, different things, different situations. Small ways, big ways. Maybe small ways all leading to a big way. And so for us, it is, uh, is to us to rely on the Spirit and to follow the example of Jesus and for us to answer Jesus. We, we prove it. Jesus was put on trial, even a sham trial, and he stayed silent before his accusers because he knew who he really was and knew that they already were condemned. Next week, he's taken before Gentile to be judged. And in the same manner stands true, and I I pray that we would do the same. I pray we would do the same. Heavenly Father, we we admit, Lord, to not being the servants that we should be. Lord, we imperfectly follow after you. Lord, I pray that we would be given renewed boldness to remember that our master, though he came and submitted submitted himself to, to weak and corrupt men who would condemn him. Lord, we know that his testimony is true. He truly is the cloud rider. He truly is the good shepherd. He is the one who will judge the living and the dead. And so in this way, God, I pray that we would daily confess these things, first to you and ourselves. And Lord, I pray that daily we would prove our love for you. We would prove it. Lord, I pray that you'd give us boldness in our words and our actions. Lord, I pray that we would be given a face like Jesus who set his face like flint to move to Jerusalem to do what was good. Lord, I pray that you would give us the same conviction. Lord, I pray for some of us to reach out to to our brothers and our sisters, Lord, to, to, 
to receive encouragement to do these things, God, to, to speak words of truth that we know must be spoken. Lord, that we would speak truth even if it means our death. And Lord, we speak ultimately like that, but Lord, sometimes we need to speak truth even if it means that someone says something snarky back or we lose a friend or there's family awkwardness. Lord, I pray that we would speak truth. I pray that we would, we would follow you as our herald of truth. Spirit, I pray that you would empower us, Lord, to live lives boldly for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.